Welcome back to The Resilient Responder, a podcast dedicated to the men and women of our first responder and military communities. Here we talk about the job, mental wellness and resiliency, coaching, family, and living our best lives. Now, once again, here is your host, Keith Hanks. All right, welcome back, folks, to The Resilient Responder. Again, I am your host, Keith Hanks. Today, we have a Real good guest on. This is uh, one of the things we talked about in the beginning of the show was making sure that we mix up uh, having both, uh, you know, first responders and family members of, along with clinicians. And the point of that was to sort of give everyone a perspective on what's out there for modalities and sort of to learn more. Because one of the things we preach about in the first responder world is if you don't know, you don't know. And with mental health, uh, part of the barrier is not knowing. Uh, so today, my guest is uh, Dr. Sachi Anana from the Shatterproof program, FHE. And many of you uh, listeners out there may remember that I uh, went down there with uh, members of my peer support group and uh, took a tour, which is an amazing facility. Uh, so she's responsible for providing clinical direction of FHE's health specialized treatment program for first responders. That is the Shatterproof program. Uh, her number one goal in her job is to help first responders return as soon as possible to their roles as public servants in their communities and families. Dr. Anana is a licensed mental health counselor, certified master's level addiction professional, and clinical sexologist. Her professional expertise and personal background groomed her for working with and relating to first responders and understanding their unique treatment needs. And we all know we have those. So this is this is important, folks. She specializes in trauma work, relationship therapy, and drug and process addictions recovery. Growing up in a military family with a father in the Navy and a brother in the Marines, uh, Dr. Inanda saw firsthand the impact that PTSD can have on the health and well-being of members of the military and first responders, and I would imagine their families. She is trained in EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, uh, motivational interviewing, relapse prevention, sex therapy, and family interventions among other innovative therapeutic strategies that have proven effective for first responders. And we're going to get into that, folks, and you're going to hear some pretty awesome things. Uh, she's originally from Vietnam, and her family came to the U.S. as refugees when she was a young child, settling in the Pacific Northwest, uh, where Dr. Ananda lived and worked for many years before eventually moving down to my favorite state, Florida, because it's always warm and they don't have snow and you don't have to shovel sunshine, um, mm-hmm. where she now calls home. Dr. Sachi, thank you so much for coming on today. Well, thank you so much, Keith, for having me. And I just love meeting people like you who are helping first responders and getting the word out with um, getting them some help. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's it's, it's weird. You know, this is um, getting the word out is sort of a new thing, uh, but it's funny when you do it, how many people you meet that are actually doing the same thing. And um, it is uh, it's, it's heartwarming and it's refreshing. Uh, because, uh, as, as you now know, you know, working with first responders coming from a military family, uh, for too long, our mental health has gone unchecked, unresolved, uh, and not really cared for. And so we're going to get right into this, folks. And we're going to have, uh, I'm going to have Dr. Sachi give a, a little bit more of her background to more of her story and sort of how she became, uh, you know, such a pivotal person down at, down at FHE. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for that nice bio that you, uh... <laughs> I just read. I just read the notes. <laughs> um, well, I did want to say I just feel super blessed to be in this position that I'm in, which is 
um, taking care of first responders after they've been through the ringer on their jobs, and all the stress they've had to deal with. Uh, and honestly, I would say of recently, socially, society-wise, um, hasn't been so kind to first responders. So um, I do feel things are changing. I'm really glad to see that. But I'm really lucky that um, God somehow has placed me in this position where I get to um, be able to work through some of those really difficult, challenging post-traumatic stress disorder cases, which by and large, as you know, Keith, is, is mostly our first responders. Right. Right. Then in the military. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, like I said, I have a, the, the, my personal experience growing up in my family. My father was in the Vietnamese Navy during the Vietnam War. <laughs> he came to America right when the fall of Saigon happened in <laughs> 1975. And I was just a baby, so you can figure out my age. <laughs> we'll leave that a mystery for everyone to do the math, right? Yeah, there we go. <laughs> um, but we um, settled in Camp Pendleton in California mm. and lucky to have the um, U.S. military helping us to make a new life in America. And uh, my dad, you know, now that I look back on it, had suffered some PTSD, of course, from being uh, in the war and then coming to the States and all that readjustment process. And I just wished, wow, it'd been really amazing to have some mental health support for him because growing up, I didn't, you know, I'm just this little baby with my emotionally immature mind thinking that how he reacted to me or reacted to problems in the family had to do with me, not um, cleaning up the house enough when he comes home and he gets mad or when he's um, sitting and isolating by himself. I'm wondering, oh, did I do something wrong to um, have him be, be sitting there on his own? And uh, so obviously I got my own personal baggage. I had to work through that. And uh, just it would have been just amazing to think what the resources they have now and what they know now about PTSD. Um, and all those resources, how different I would be, but also how different my family and my dad would have been. So I always, I, I never forget that, you know, where I came from. And it's awesome, like you're saying, Keith, how much um, things have really grown as far as the awareness and acceptance of PTSD for first responders. Mm -hmm. um, still way more to go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> But I think overall, what's really great, even beyond the first responder population is, you know, society in general is looking more at mental health. Um, and that's always been a long term stigma um, against people getting help and, and for people actually talking about it. So yeah. that started before the wave started for first responders getting help. But I feel that something's happening here. For sure. I, you know, I always say, and I, and I always throw this out, almost every episode I get an opportunity to, it, it is movement. It's like a glacier on molasses, but <laughs> yeah, it, it, there is movement. There is movement for sure. Yeah. And, I, you know, so um, for our Shatterproof program, which is specifically treating um, mental health and substance use disorders for first responders in need, um, I started in 
2017. And it started maybe a year before I, I got on. And we started off with one person. <laughs> and it has grown to an extremely robust, strong program of uh, a, a community of 50 first responders hmm. wanting to get help. And you, that's a pretty short time for yeah. that growth to happen. Especially in this culture. Exactly. Like you said, uh, what'd you call it? Molasses on glaciers. <laughs> uh, glacier on molasses. Yeah. We, uh, you know, it's that whole 175 years of tradition unimpeded by progress mentality. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. So what I think um, has been really helpful is programs like ours starting to exist, but we can't exist without the help of peer support groups, which I mm. feel really starting to grow. And, um, I'm so thankful for that because honestly, I mean, the whole reason why we created the program was what helps first responders the most is their own people. Mm-hmm. And they'll have so much more impact than any, I like to say, any clinician, any professional family member even will have um, that it's really that peer to peer support. And without, without us reaching out and all of us working together, um, it really does. It takes a village to mm. get those responders. And that's really been, I've worked in the field uh, with a general population uh, treatment center. Um, and certainly there's a lot of complexities in dealing with addiction and mental health. But when you get to first responders, wow, it's even mm. more complexities. It's like layers upon layers of, of, um, things to dig through, uh, issues to dig through with them, because the problem is you can't tell the first responder is struggling. Nope. Guys are so good at hiding it and covering it up, but that's what you've had to, you know, that's part of the job is you're seeing things on a daily basis as say a firefighter or a police that one person would see in their, maybe in their lifetime. Right. And you're seeing it multiple times a day. And you think about a human being should not, is not meant to be exposed to that, um, that often, constantly. And you think about how long careers ha- can be, can be a decade, two decades, three decades of daily chronic exposure to all of that stress. It's a lot of shit. It really is. And, <laughs> it, and you know, one of the things, uh, that I always share with people and a lot of people, you know, other first responders will say is that, you know, with, with the mental health, uh, specifically first responders, in the military talking about it in, in, in recovering from it isn't about taking the toughness away from the job. Now there is a reason and there are people have different views on this, but there is a reason why there's only one to one and a half percent of the population in this country that can do a first responders job. Mm-hmm. And that will always remain that way. They're, you know, smart, normal people run away from danger. The one, one and a half percent of us run towards it daily and repeatedly. And, and we sit there, you know, in this career, maybe, maybe right away, maybe decades later, wondering why we were the, the way that we are. Right. And it's like, you're right. And, you know, your typical, we like to call them general population or normies um, will have, you know, what, one to three traumas or maybe three to five traumas, significant traumas in their entire life. We're seeing that in a week. We're seeing that in a shift, you know, and um, programs like Shatterproof um, and other uh, specifically, like you said, peer support groups are really 
um, you know, where it's at when it comes to first responders being able to get to the point where it's like, all right, there is help. There's been help for a while. Um, and it's okay that I get it. And I'd be interested in this, to hear your perspective, um, you know, from a clinical point of view with the people that come in the door down in FHG. What is sort of, and I guess we'll start with maybe initially, what is sort of the initial mentality when someone who comes to the door at FHG is getting help for maybe the first time in their life? A first responder comes in the door and they're like, this is my first time ever talking about this stuff. Yeah, honestly, um, because it's been usually takes quite a while before um, a first responder is willing to seek the help because um, they've probably been trying to do it on their own for many years. Hmm. It's quite honestly, when they walk through that door, they're pretty shocked that, oh, my God, what did I just do? <laughs> well, how did right. I end up here? Because there's so much guilt and shame for them to think that they're so used to helping others that they need the help. So honestly, it is kind of a uh, culture shock. Uh, and I always like to be right up front with that, with our um, and referral sources or ways we get the word out because I want them to know exactly what they're getting into. Right. And the more they know, the, the less scary it is. So it's very common to have that almost shell shock experience going into treatment. And, um, you know, giving up some of your your belongings, like your cell phone and other personal comforts in order for this facility to, you know, help manage your life. Like, imagine how hard that is. Um, and it is. It is. From someone who's been in numerous programs, um, it is, you go to it and you're like, okay, so I've given, in, I've given myself to getting treatment. And I think a lot of people who don't know think that i mean it's scary you know it's going to be scary because you're it, it's it's a change and we hate change um but i think a lot of people aren't prepared for you know how much of a culture shock it really can be because you do you have to be safe and there are certain things that do have to happen uh, when you do go to any facility um and i think it's important for people to hear that to hear that it's okay it's okay they're not you know, this isn't, you're not going to prison. You're not doing three to five for having a mental illness <laughs> condition. You know, it's, uh, but I think, and I think, and maybe you can help me with this one because um, I'm not a cop. I, I was a, you know, a buckethead and an EMT for a long time. Um, I think specifically for law enforcement, it's hard to go into an institution, if you will, um, to get into that institutionalized mentality where there's potential where you're going to be running into people that are very similar to the the people you were dealing with, exactly. uh, with their job, you know, um, with what you guys do down there, has there been any sort of, you know, interaction with, I guess, uh, any first responder, but specifically law enforcement, it comes to that mentality. Oh my God, am I going to run into someone I arrested? <laughs> no, absolutely. I think that's why that prevents a lot of law enforcement communities to um, get help because of that very reason, especially in their local area. So what's nice is we actually, our first responder program has, um, they're, they're mostly not from Florida. Um, they are from other states across the country. And it's because they, they don't want to run into that problem where they are in treatment with somebody they actually arrested. Um, one thing, and that's 
one of the major reasons we started a first responder program is, you know, for our program specifically, there's a brief period where you're with the uh, general population, we call it, or the normies. Normies. <laughs> um, and we know how hard it is for them to come in the doors. Um, but once they get into um, our shatterproof program where they're just with other first responders, I tell you, I wish I could have a picture of their face from when they first entered um, the facility to when they first enter into a clinical therapeutic group with only first responders. It's like just total relief. Yeah, night, night and day. Night and day. It's it's like, uh, finally, I'm here with other people, but I'm also not the, the weird one or the weak one who had to come get help. Everybody in this group is just like me, and it's okay. And that's huge, and that's why... Um, I wish, you know, more programs could be created that are just for first responders because they have very specific issues. Like you said, they're um, 1.5% of the population. It's small. They chase, exactly. It's also, um, you know, it's unique in several ways. And, and part of that is, I guess, you know, there's the overburden of, you know, repetitive trauma, sure. Um, but there's also... Uh, and this is part of the culture a lot of us are trying to change is that having to be at a 10 all the time, we turn the emotional dials down, we turn up the, the adrenaline dials and, and we don't turn the adrenaline dials back down and, and turn back up the emotional dials because we have to be able to do our job is ingrained in you from either boot camp, the academy or initial training that you have to be on point all the time. And when someone goes from you know that to the point of burnout, uh, you know, compassion, fatigue. PTSD, whatever it may be, um, they very quickly realize that um, they're going to have to figure out how to how to get those dials back to where they need to be, and you know, within normal operating limits. And um, that alone um, takes a certain group of people to be able to deal with that group of people, and and it helps that you know, especially at Shadowproof, you guys have that ability to you know put all these people to help them feel not so alone. I think that's clutch. Yeah, and uh, the other part of um, that I think helps with the entry into treatment, at least for our program, is um, you were exposed to our neuro rehab services, Keith, at yeah. Shatterproof. And um, what happens when a first responder first enters a door is they get a uh, brain map right away. So that can help them see um, basically areas where their brain has been under-functioning or over-functioning. Mm -hmm. And so basically it's this visual map of this is my brain on PTSD. <laughs> so when they can see that it's not just their own right. perspective that they think something's wrong with them, it's like, yeah, something is wrong as far as your brain's been damaged from the job. It literally all is in your head, but it really is there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I and I think that helps a lot in taking away that guilt and shame because again, they just think it's it's some weakness on their part that they had to come to treatment, couldn't do it on their own. But no, it's just your brain's not balanced, and it's been um, exposed. The chronic exposure to the stress has really done something to how you think, how you mm -hmm. feel. You probably weren't the same person you were um, before you entered the field, and it shows. This is the proof. 
Right. And brain mapping is huge. I, uh, during part of my treatment up here in New England, I actually had a lot of like brain mapping, you know, MRIs. I had the, the EEGs. Um, I had all that stuff done and it really does help to show you that, okay, it's not, it's not just me making this, this stuff up. It's, it's really there and it really is an injury of sorts. It's, it's, yeah. it's really happening. It's happening. And that does help a first responder because we're sort of a, uh, we need proof. Mm-hmm. Um, before we'll do anything because we do not like change and, uh, <laughs> and, and whatnot. Yeah. You definitely um, want the control, which again makes sense because your job is to control and manage chaos. Um, but then in your you know, being able to let go of that control in order to get better and get help. Um, and then, you know, throughout the process of the neuro um, rehab work that we do is you get that initial brain map and then you get your neuro rehab sessions, but also you get your therapy and group work and whatnot. What makes it so much more incredible is uh, one thing about you guys is that you are very rigid thinkers. Very mm. No. <laughs> no. Not at you all. hate the gray, <laughs> which yeah. is what? Black and therapy. white. It? <laughs> Black and white, either this way or that way. Can't be anything in between. So, of course, that is a skill for the job, that rigidity, that structured mind. But it ain't so good for, like, your own personal life and personal um, being able to relate to others and, and live in that gray space. So that neuro is basically working out your brain so that it's much more flexible so that when you do therapy and all the trauma work, you can actually absorb it more quicker than you would without all that those extra neural services. And so I always, um, in fact, I um, make it a point to do co-therapy, we call it, which is when they're getting their neural rehab session done, uh, I'm in there doing right. therapy. So it kind of helps me because they're not, you know, their brain is much more flexible so I can actually really right. um, change their thought process, look at how they have some um cognitive distortions or some inflexibilities that's really getting in the way of them being happy right and you know a lot of this and i know you'll understand this and appreciate this a lot of this comes back to being constantly in fight or flight right and you know it it, it's not and you don't realize it you don't you don't realize what's happening and i know for me because my life's an open book literally um I share pretty much vividly, possibly. I didn't realize that a lot of what I was doing, the behavior that I was outwardly portraying, um, and a lot of things that I was uh, feeling were because my body had no idea if I wanted to run towards the lion or run away from the lion. And it was in constant battle, even when I wasn't in battle. And that is something that a lot of us, and I know, you know, you guys down there at FHG, probably see this all the time. We walk in the door and I know I did initially and I was just angry because that for me, anger being a secondary emotion, it was the easiest one to do because there's no question. You're just pissed. Right. Mm -hmm. Sadness, fear, happiness, love can be very confusing, especially to a man who is in a male dominated profession, professions where you're expected to be an emotionless creature for the sake of the job, which in the end is not helpful, folks. Um, and then all of a sudden this becomes your your fight or flight's doing 
across the radar all the time, back and forth. You don't know what you're doing all the time, and you you do you come across angry. And I would rather imagine, uh, much like other programs in this country, Shatterproof probably sees quite a quite a few outwardly angry um, first responders. Absolutely, I think that's um, one of the major group topics we focus on. Actually, is anger management, and uh, I think people are starting to see more that anger is a symptom of depression that constant irritability negativity poor outlook in life and things like that but it's also a major symptom of ptsd like mm. ptsd and you're I, I love how i just really love that model of the fight flight and freeze mm. because you're right you don't know it's because you've had to do it at least you know 40 hours plus a week for however long and that doing the opposite of what your brain wants you to do which is running away from danger you're running towards it you're right your brain doesn't know which direction so when your loved one goes towards you and wants to console you or ask you uh, questions about your day you think okay why are you asking me this you know, right you think I can't do it you know you think i'm weak you you don't know me you know <laughs> it's yeah. like a but you think I can't handle this? I can't handle this. Like, come on, I do this all the time. And yeah, you get so confused, and your outward reaction is anger mm-hmm. until it's not. And that that happens after you you face your shit, as I like to say. You 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 have to face all the things that have happened, and you have to be honest with it. And that one of the things we're going to get into in a, in a few minutes here, folks, after we come back from a quick break, is going to be some of the more modalities, uh, specifically that I know FHG does down there, um, but also sort of like how you really need to go at your treatment when you finally decide it's time to go at your treatment. Uh, But we're just gonna take a real quick break here, uh, get a word from our sponsor, First Responder Coaching. Coaching is here now for all first responders and their families. When it comes to the job and the stresses that come with it, we at First Responder Coaching know exactly how it can affect every aspect of your life and the lives of those around you. That's because we are first responders and their families. First responders are well-versed in reacting to a situation. It is literally what we do as firefighters, law enforcement, dispatch, and EMS personnel. When trauma enters our lives, we react to it by tucking it down away somewhere in our minds, but we carry it with us and never really goes away. We need to stop carrying trauma into every aspect of our personal and professional lives. It's time to start having proactive, powerful conversations right now to gain a better balance in the responders' whole life. This is true for their families, especially the spouses. Take that first step in making some of the most important improvements in your life. Visit www.1strespondercoaching.org now to make an appointment to chat with FRC. A coach will reach out, and before you know it, you'll be on your way to living a proactively fit lifestyle. All right, folks, we're back. Uh, Dr. Sachianata from FHG down in Deerfield Beach, which, by the way, it is beautiful down there. And I guarantee you they don't have two feet of snow on the ground like I do right now at my house. And um, I wish I was down there right now instead of where I am. But uh, we're having a great conversation and we're, we just got done talking about, uh, you know, fight or flight and how first responders sort of appear when they first come into FHG. And, uh, you know, Dr. Sachi, one of the things I, I was really impressed with and I got to experience when I went down there for a tour uh, was one of the modalities. And um, as a first responder, again, as a male, I was always really resistive, well, to any sort of treatment, 
but specifically anything that was holistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of those is breath work. And I got to experience an amazing session down at your facility, uh, along with two other members from my peer support group and another member who was there touring with us. And um, I'd like if you, if you could give us a little bit more insight into what I'm referring to uh, down there, because I know I could describe it. I can only describe it from my experience. If you can kind of give some of our viewers and listeners a little bit more info, that'd be great. Yeah, Keith, I'm so happy that you had the, the actual experience of doing the breathwork. So we have a very special practice, practitioner who is skilled in and certified in integrated breathwork therapy. Mm. So the concept is uh, really based, at least when you put it in a, in a PTSD um, lens, is what we've learned is that the body keeps score as far as holding on to all the trauma that's been faced in a person's life. And people may not even know that their body's still holding on to that. And so what the breath work does is she takes them to what's called a non-ordinary state of consciousness Mm. through the breath work. And what that allows it to do is basically getting your your brain, your ego, um, your thinking out of the way so that the body can heal from the trauma. So we'll see these, you know, big, tough first responders come in, you know, kind of very skeptical of the whole um, therapy process. But what you'll find is that suddenly when they get into that state, their body is crying like they're curled up in a ball sometimes and just um, releasing a lot of that trauma and it's a different type of release. It's not like you're necessarily sad or feeling the emotion. Right. It's that your body is literally, literally crying and it's trying to release all that stuff that's been held in, especially with first responders, because you've had to hold it in, like we've talked about on the job. And there's right. opportunity um, to get out of that logic brain and into more, say, like a spiritual realm where you can um there's been just some phenomenal experiences of you know um people have lost lives and lost important people um who basically really come through to speak to them i know it sounds kind of hokey and oh and, and, and it may sound hokey to some people out there but um in a nutshell my experience was that and you know i was in that session with two people from my peer support group which i had a very strong uh level of trust with and um, I didn't know the the person running the breathwork session from a hole in the wall. And um, the experience I had was, um, spir- I don't even know if spiritual comes to, you can even do it justice. It was an unbelievable um, turning point in, in parts of my recovery with certain traumas. And that was just going there and, and just, you know, experiencing your facility and being able to take play, take part in one of the modalities. And, and folks, you know, that alone speaks volumes of what can be done um when it comes to our healing and it's it can lead to such great things in life and and even beyond and we're gonna we're gonna talk about um you know the far end of the spectrum which would be like suicide and whatnot in a little bit here but um before you even get there there's career losses relationship loss there is just removal from society there's emotional cutoff there's you know self-harm there's addictive and even abuse um behaviors and it doesn't have to get to that extreme and one of the things that 
um, can lead to those healing moments is modalities like breath work, as simple as just literally breathing. And um, I know I was appreciative of that. And it was funny after we were done. Well, funny, but just uplifting. When we were done and the other people I was there uh, with were just like, if I hadn't seen it, I wouldn't believe it. And it was really, I know I appreciated it. And, you know, it was one of those moments where after it was all done, everyone in that room, there was four of us, three of us were men. Uh, we all hugged. And it was just an amazing, uplifting and hopeful moment. And I think we all deserve to experience those. Yeah, and I, I, I appreciate how you um, can see that, you know, you you were already trusting in that group of people in order to let yourself go and mm -hmm. experience that. And, you know, creating that space in our program for just first responders. But also um, the breathwork instructor, Lisa, she... Uh, um, really is very careful with combat veterans mm -hmm. you can imagine of course what they've been through and held on to so she's extremely careful with how she takes people through it because it's um if you've never faced that stuff it can be really intense and scary and all that so um but yeah we've actually had people uh, who are peer support teams or union reps coming to visit the program and they do the breath work and then they end up in the treatment <laughs> because they realize right. how much they need some help too. It really is um, amazing. And uh, one of the things uh, to kind of go back to, you know, the day we all, we all went down and toured, one of the things I picked up on was it didn't matter who the person was that we bumped into. And we saw everyone from, you know, yourself and Rami, uh, the CEO. Uh, to the people leading the tour, to, you know, kitchen help, uh, environmental services, clinicians, uh, behavioral specialists, to patients. And the overwhelming feeling I got and everyone I was with was everyone wanted to be there. And from someone who's been to numerous treatments himself and has vetted other facilities and has been and heard experiences, that is really hard to find. And sure, one can argue that, you know, in the beginning of the day, everyone's like, hey, there's a tour coming through. Everyone smile. You're not going to get a patient to do that. You're not, you're not going to get a first responder to play nice in the sandbox unless they want to. And to me, that was that was very obvious that there is a good atmosphere down there. And um, that's hard to find. And whatever, you know, with all that I know you're doing and all that you're, you know, you're talking about what you're doing, you guys are obviously doing something right because the the environment, the atmosphere is in the end what can make or break a treatment. I'm so glad you're able to really feel that. I mean, I feel um, blessed and that's why I've been with FHE Health for so long is I do think um, uh, there's a genuine love and care for the clients that come in mm. and it's a very supportive work environment. Um, but uh, to make a first responder happy, <laughs> it's pretty it could be big. a challenge. It could be a challenge. <laughs> We have a high satisfaction rate and it's actually come from, it hasn't been easy. Uh, of course, very challenging, difficult, complex population. And we've had to take some hard knocks learning, but we, we have to learn and grow with the changing needs of the first responder community. Um, and you know what? They're really good at sniffing you out. So if, <laughs> if you want. Anyone, you're not um, caring and in it for their health and well-being. They ain't gonna come. 
<laughs> yeah, no, we can we can smell bullshit artists a mile away, and uh, especially cops. Um, oh yes, totally. So the um, you know, one of the other things I kind of wanted, what, what I liked uh, specifically, and um, you know, we're gonna talk a little bit about this is um, so you have all the different treatment modalities, and that's amazing. One of the things I really liked was the follow up uh, that takes place after uh, someone does transition back to either their personal life or back to the job. Uh, and I'd kind of like you to kind of elaborate more on the alumni uh, portion of the FAG aftercare. Oh, great. You know, one of the things we we hope to and try to instill in um, the uh, first responder clients is how important it is to ask for help and to um, be open to talking about your issues with other mm. peers. That actually carries on. Um, we officially have our alumni um, activities and supports and meetings uh, online and in person. Um, but we also um, have seen that the clients themselves will self-initiate their own support group meetings. Um, I know of many groups of clients who have come through who after even four years or years still regularly somehow either on a text thread or um, we have a Facebook uh, shatterproof page. We have, um, um, they've like, you know, with zoom meetings, they've set up their own zoom meetings. That's impressive. <laughs> yes. And, uh, you know, we will have some of our alumni will help other, either other, first responders they know get help or they're, you know, somebody they they knew in treatment, if they've stayed in touch, they're being like, you need to go back. You need to get a tune-up or you need some more help because you're struggling. Mm. So that type of um, connection during the program and after, I think, I just get excited about it because it's like mm. this seeds we're planting across the country of, of different first responders who are going to just continue to um, help each other the camaraderie is huge and and for those of us who have been in the whatever pillar of the first spawn world camaraderie is, is sometimes these days it's been a little harder to find maybe society changes social changes whatever it may be um so when you have a group of individuals that are then tied in to each other because of something that is so stigmatized and they're finding camaraderie um, that is huge because one of the biggest things uh, that I always battled was feeling so alone mm-hmm. in this, even though I knew that there, you know, I'm, I'm not an idiot. I knew there was other people who were probably battling this. I felt alone because no one was talking about it. And to have this, this alumni, to have this group of people and even self initiating alumni, self initiating, you know, follow-ups and whatnot is huge in the first responder community. I can tell you that from the inside that, um, you know, we are the worst communicators. Um, I still, I'm terrible at keeping in touch with people. Um, and that's, 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 I don't know if that's because we're so afraid of, of the loss that can happen that we don't want to get, we almost don't want to get too attached to someone because mm-hmm. we see things change in the blink of an eye and people, you know, people leave our lives, whatever the loss is, whether it's the extreme of death or it's just, you know, a change that that person's done around. Uh, maybe there's that, but the here, that people are initiating that on their own. First responders are initiating that on their own is is uh, very refreshing and uplifting uh, for me at least. 
Yeah, one of the symptoms of, of PTSD is a sense of feeling disconnected. Mm. And I, I think that might be what you may be talking about as far as feeling very alone. So uh, what I'm always keeping in mind is that disconnection is not just with their family and um but they've they tend to lose trust in their departments or in amongst their own team yep so even though they're they're working with other first responders they're disconnected from them even yep it's true and i i know there's going to be listeners out there when i say this thing i'm like oh man yep that's true so there was times when people I had worked with, um, there's a period of time in my career with the fire service, I had a partner for almost six years. One person I worked with consistently for six years. And um, I knew I'd been at baptisms with this person, weddings, like, you know, this was a very close person. And towards the end, when I was in the middle of my shit, I almost, there was times I couldn't even remember their first name because I felt so disconnected from this person. I didn't want to give them anything. And that is a very big symptom of of PTSD. and. And folks, when you're going through this and you're experiencing these things, it can get better. And this is this is one of the avenues um, to do that. And this is actually a great segue into the part that I wanted to kind of talk about. And this is the extremes of of what, you know, whether it's, you know, a different form of mental illness, depression, or even specifically PTSD or complex PTSD, what it can what it can bring. And that is, you know, whether it's the far end of it being, you know, suicide which tends to be a very scary word for a lot of people to say, but suicide, someone ending their own life, or something as simple as the person not showing up to Sunday dinner with their family anymore because they just, they're afraid of that. Um, one of the things that I always try to push to people is it doesn't have to be, and as first responders, we're reactive. We're acute fixers. Our job literally is to wait till something happens and go fix it. And it's, <laughs> it's a thrill. It's it's great, you know. I I miss I miss doing that. Um, and a lot of the guys and, and gals in the job, that's a lot of why they do it, right? Unfortunately, we need to stop waiting until it gets to that extreme with our mental health. And you know, sure, the end end result can be suicide, but the some of the initial problems can be divorce. It can be you know self harm. And so, is there down at FHG? And, and I honestly don't know this answer. Is there is there any sort of specialized or focus on when, when an individual comes in, they start telling you a story and, and say they've had they don't even mention any past suicide attempts. Is is the is it an individualized, really individualized treatment for each patient? Or do you guys have like an outline that is like, okay, this person falls into this and this is where we're gonna start? Because I think some people may have some questions about that and maybe even some anxiety about what it looks like when they first go in. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And um, I would say that for sure we do, we, we meet the individual where they're at, like uh, every first responders. You've got ones who are all in and ready to do a recovery and are open book to mm -hmm. the other where they were voluntold to um, <laughs> come to treatment where they might have gotten into some trouble at work or um, some performance issues, things like that. Um, so we have to, we, we meet them where they're at and when in their stage of change, what they're ready and wanting to do. Um, and, you know, just going back to the complexity, there's, there's so many layers to an individual coming in that they may, um, you know, certainly there's uh 
general things that we're working on with every first responder. Right. Because we've been, uh, we understand the culture and we know um, they, they connect with each other on certain core issues. But when you dig even deeper with um, individuals is what I always like to look at is pre-trauma. Mm-hmm. That uh, one of the reasons why somebody may become a first responder is because they had a lot of adversity in their childhood development. Here we go. This is what I want to yep. talk about. Yeah. One of my favorite topics actually is really looking at the family of origin. Um, what happened before you became a first responder? Because like I was saying, it often a first responder want to be a first responder because they've either been victimized in being bullied or um, abused in different forms growing up, or they were a witness to that and wanted to make sure it never happens to anybody else. So before you even get on the job, you think about how you already have trauma issues, and then you go into this um, extremely stressful environment for many years, and you're just making that trauma PTSD worse. So I feel like we have to individualize it. We have to see what's some of the real underlying issues. And um, what's great about FHE is even though we're a specialized program, we're part of a bigger facility. So there's so many different interventions. Like if you, let's say you didn't take to the breath work, when that's okay. You know, we've got yoga, we've got um, acupuncture, we've got massage, we have different facilitators with all different styles. just because we know it can't just be a, a cookie cutter. Everybody does this and, and you're going to do it whether you like it or not. Yeah. <laughs> the the shoe does not always fit everyone correctly. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. it takes time to really. And we also work a lot with families and loved ones of first responders come in because we, we like to get the other perspective um, just to get that individualized treatment so that we know exactly more about their history and some things that they were seeing that maybe they don't even know that they've been doing. Right. You know, and that, that in itself, and, and this, this is a good, this is a good one to talk on. Um, I didn't realize how much that work Keith was one person and home Keith was someone else. And every first responder right now is probably sitting there being like, ah, oh, shit, this guy knows it. And so, uh, the, <laughs> People at work almost didn't know anything was going on. When I first got diagnosed in 2015 with PTSD and I started talking about it and becoming an advocate, people were like, come on, really? My wife was like, I, I knew it. I knew it. And oftentimes our, our family, specifically our spouses, um, will we'll know things that we're not, we don't, we're not aware of. And one of the first things I did when I first got getting help was after I went through my initial treatment, got you know stable and began to understand what was going on inside me me and my wife actually went through a trauma-based couples therapy and um it was very it was so incredibly helpful because it comes down to communication folks and i can't harp on communication if you don't say it it didn't happen it's just like writing a report if you don't write it down it didn't happen and if you can talk about these things and and it's so refreshing to hear that fhe uh does do some focus work with the families um because it is um, so hard because so many of us don't bring home the job. We bring home something else and it's not necessarily us. 
and um, to hear that there's you know another modality out there that's helping first responders figure out how to do that because our, come to find out our spouses do want to know where we're at believe it or not uh, the, pe- the people we marry and our children and our families uh, they may not want to hear the gory details sure um, but they do want to know where we're at they care about us they love us and sometimes as a first responder it's hard to to understand you know well, I really commend you and your wife for doing um, trauma-based couples therapy um, because, you know, we talk about first responders and their direct PTSD, but the families and spouses are going through secondary yep. trauma. Secondary, yep. Being part of the journey. Um, as much as a first responder may want to keep that from them, they can't help but, but be affected by it. And then be traumatized in their own way. Yeah. Um, so I always say that it's it's not just the first responder that needs treatment, but it's their families too. It's the whole picture. And like you said in the beginning, it takes a village. And it takes a village beyond just the, the first responders professional network and even the, you know, uh, the, the mental health network. It takes their family. And if you're going to recover, you have to do it as a whole. And that, that includes all all aspects of your life and as much as and again you know i only know because i'm a man but being a man we tend to be a little bit more thick-headed and, and stubborn with it we think we're protecting our spouses and our family and we're actually not and mm-hmm. i wasn't aware until we developed communication which funny side note we had to develop a safe word and my wife chose mud skipper you know what a mud skipper is no i do not it's some sort of amphibian or something that can actually walk across water yeah yeah so we had a humorous safe word that if things were escalating during our initial learning how to communicate you know i'd be getting heated or she would be getting heated if we said mud skipper not only would we probably you know piss our pants laughing but it broke the conversation we knew we had to stop but as first responders we 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 think we're keeping them safe and honestly we don't realize always sometimes we do um but we don't realize how much we're actually causing that secondary trauma at home um and so it's really important to kind of work on everything and again it's it's so great to hear that you know fhg does take the family um dynamic into consideration i love that you are saying that as far as the reasons why a first responder might not be letting their families in emotionally it's because but that's absolutely true and and i'm just really lucky that i get to see the true heart of a first responder without all the stuff they've accumulated from the job and how they had to protect themselves. But deep down, they are so worried about protecting the other person. All the time. They think that they are helping by trying to protect them from yourself. And um, I just love that you put that out there. I think we should all remember that, that there's a good intention to it. Mm -hmm. It's just not getting the outcome that they really think they're getting. They're they're not protecting them. They're just making them disconnected, which is even more painful right. than hearing like the gory details and things like that. Right. You know, you know, and, and these days, um I you know, I'm not the only person who has worked on communication, but um I've heard other amazing stories of, you know, couples specifically, but families of first responders who have opened that that dialogue door where it's like, okay, you come in the door and I can tell it's been a rough 24 hour shift at the firehouse or whatever. Um, what's up? Where are you at? You know, and it's as simple as that. 
you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, at 8 a.m. I did CPR on a seven-month-old. At 9 a.m. I was dragging an old lady out of a house. It doesn't have to be the details. It could be as simple as I've had a really rough day and I spent most of my shift in the company of death and I'm not really feeling too good right now. And sometimes that just gets the conversation going and it leads to a hug. And I'm a big guy. I'm 6'5". I'm 250 pounds and I love getting hugs. And sometimes that hug is all I need to be able to get out of my funk. And um, I am the first to admit that 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 is sometimes all it takes a handshake, holding the hand, you know, whatever it may be, but just knowing that you're not alone. And I think that's the overall message here is that programs like FHE are helping first responders realize, understand, and believe that they're they're not alone. And, you know, they're in their community with their their brothers and sisters in a, you know, a clinical group of people who are really do care. And that's that's hard to find sometimes. And so I I, I applaud all of you down there for being able to establish that. Oh, thanks so much, Keith. I really respect what you've been through and how you've worked through your own stuff and that you're so open about it. Um, just really appreciate you. Well, thank you. There's uh, there's a few of us out there that, you know, that do this and uh, it's always a unique relationship that you end up establishing with someone else who um, quote unquote lives an open book life and um, sort of goes out there to help other first responders because it doesn't have to be this way. The, 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 some of the lifestyle that we live as first responders doesn't have to be the way it is. It doesn't mean that we don't have to be tough anymore on the job. It just means that maybe we don't have to be tough all the time. Mm-hmm. You know? Exactly. So is there anything else that you'd like to share um, today about anything that I didn't, I didn't cover at FHE that may be of interest to anyone listening? Well, I just want to make sure I express my gratitude for all the first responders and, and what they've, done to help their families and communities and the country. Um, It's a thankless job oftentimes. Mm -hmm. And uh, any support that we can give, consider us a resource. Even you don't have to come to our program, whatever other ways you can get help. But um, it's okay to ask for help, to ask for help. And Mm -hmm. sometimes rescuers need rescuing too. Absolutely, we do. And we don't have to be a helper to everyone. Sometimes we can have someone be our helper. And uh, facilities like yours uh, are one of those places where we're allowed to let our guard down a little bit and uh, maybe let someone help us out. Yes, absolutely. So, folks, um, their website at FHE is fherehab.com. You know, check them out. Uh, Reach out to the podcast. Reach out to Dr. Sachi. Um, You know, just reach out. You don't have to be alone. You're not alone in this. Uh, there are modalities. There are, you know, simple fixes. There are more complex fixes. It's a journey. Uh, I myself am still a work in progress, uh, as I'm sure Dr. Saj is going to appreciate. Anyone who says they're fixed after an initial treatment is, is lying themselves. But um, again, uh, Dr. Saji, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a really great conversation, which I think is going to help our viewers. And that's really the whole point, right, is to give some insight into um, what's out there. So thank you again for coming on. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. All right, folks. Again, this has been The Resilient Responder. Uh, Stay tuned for future episodes uh, with some more amazing guests. And as always, stay safe and much love.